Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and lifts you up. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. The message that God has given me to bring this morning is a heavy one. And so I'm approaching it with a great deal of caution. And I'm cautious for two reasons. Number one, the subject that we're dealing with this morning has directly impacted a number of you. And you know firsthand the pain and the the heartache and the brokenness and the shame uh, that comes with this. And uh, I love you as your pastor and I, I certainly don't want to cause more pain or to do something to stir up more pain in your heart. And so uh, I'm really cautious about this message this morning. Um, so I can promise you a couple of things. One thing I'm going to promise that I'll promise that I will handle this as carefully as I can, okay? And I also will promise you that if you're willing to stick with me to the end, that there is healing and there is some hope at the end, but it's going to be some pain between here and there, so please walk with me. And then, and then the third thing, I'll say this, I can promise that if this morning, um, you know, picks the scab on your soul and stirs up the pain again that maybe you've dealt with a long time ago, that we can walk through that together. Like, that's the beauty of what a church body can do. Amen? Like, the, the body of Christ. We can walk through this together. And, and we don't have to be afraid of pain. Amen? Um, so I make those three promises to you today. So that's the first reason why I'm cautious. The second reason why I'm cautious this morning is because this is a hot topic. And because it's a hot topic, everybody has an opinion on it. <clears throat> and that means that some of you will oppose me this morning. And if you oppose me this morning, I want you to hear this. I love you. You can oppose me if you want. I don't take it personally. I love you. Um, but as a pastor, I have a responsibility. Wouldn't you agree? Like there's an obligation that I have as your pastor to make certain that you understand God's word. Wouldn't you say that's basic to my job description? Like, like I want to make, and, and you know what? In the last two years, it's become more of a conviction of mine, actually, that I, I want you to be grounded in God's word so that you can actually see what's happening around you through the grid of God's word. Does that make sense? Like, that's, this is vitally important. See, there's, there's one thing that happened when you gave your life to Jesus Christ and you decided to make him your Savior and your Lord, is this. You gave up your right to your own opinion. Like, like the, very, the very most that you could say is this. You, the most that you could say is, okay, here's this thing in the Bible that makes me uncomfortable. It, it, makes, me, it makes me a little nervous. You know, but it's God's word, so I, I believe it. And I'm sticking with it. Like, that's the most that I can say. Wouldn't you say that's, like, honest? Any of you have anything like that in the Bible? Anything in the Bible that bugs you? Right? Absolutely. And you know what? It should. I don't think, if, if you're, you're not reading your Bible, if there's nothing in here that doesn't bug you, right? You're not, because I'm sorry, you and I are really limited, 
and we're small, and we're finite, and the God that we worship is absolutely mind-blowing. Wouldn't you agree? And so it's safe to say he blows our minds a lot, and that's just fine with me, right? So at the very most, I can say, hey, he said this in his word, and I'm struggling with it, man. Uh, But I submit to it because I believe that he knows what's best. God's will is the best thing that could ever happen to me, and I'm going to stick with it. But here's what you can't say. Ready? Here's what you can't do honestly and legitimately as a follower of Christ. You cannot say, well, here's what God says in his word, but here's what I believe. Because the moment that you say that, you've made yourself God. You've made yourself the authority, and you've ceased following Christ in that moment. Because, do you hear the words? Here's what God says, but here's what I believe. As though somehow you know more than the God of the universe knows? Like, who do you think you are? Follow that? See, so when I gave my life to Jesus, and I said, you're my Savior, you're my Lord, I literally gave up my right to my own opinion. His word is his will, and I'm bound to it whether I like it or not. But you know what? I've wrestled through with it personally, and I would say if you're not there yet, that's cool. Wrestle. It's a good thing. God loves wrestlers. He really does. So it's just fine to wrestle, but man, wrestle with it. But don't allow yourself to stay in this really dishonest place of making up your own religion. Like, that's not cool. So wrestle, and at least admit that you're wrestling. Like, we can, we can deal with that. You tracking? Okay, great. So let's just, let's just start there. We don't have the luxury, right, so to speak, of, of making up our own stuff. So this is what the Bible says, and this is what I'm held to. So today, we're going to talk about this. Today, we're going to walk through our Bibles, and we're going to see what God has to say about the supreme value of human life and why every single human life matters, even the ones still in the womb. That's what we're going to do today. So the title of this message is this, the only right choice is life. It's the only right choice is life. So here's what I will not be doing, I promise you. I will not be pulling out statistics about abortion I promise that. And I will not be showing pictures of baby parts, nothing like that. I assure you, I promise you, nothing. You notice the graphic, it's extremely blue and plain. That's on purpose. Really trying to not go after any emotional kind of heartstrings. Really trying to keep this as straightforward as we can. First of all, I'm no expert on that kind of thing, but I do love God's word. And I know that you do too. So we want to see what God's heart is. And my prayer for us is this, that as we walk through, we're just literally going to walk through scripture verses, a lot of them. And as we do, we're going to, I believe, you're going to see the God of the universe just do this. He's going to open up his heart. And he's going to say, do you see my heart? And I hope today that we do. I hope that you see the magnificent heart of God as we walk through what he has said in his word about how he views 
human life. And so we're going to start right with Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, and Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. They, they both go together. This is God's creation of people, and here's what it says. So this is page 1 of our Bible. This is how much this is a part of God's heart. Okay, page 1. He says this, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move on the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And then, continuing into Genesis 2-7, you find that it expands on God's creation of, of mankind. And it says this, that the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Wow. In all of creation, there is nothing like you. Do you know that? You... The creation of men and women was God's crowning achievement in the world. He created us in his own image. For one thing, the rest of the world God created by simply speaking it into existence. He said, let there be, and it was. Let there be, and it was. And then he comes to the sixth day, and he comes to the creation of people, and God gets his hands dirty. He noticed the word formed, he formed man. It's the same word in the Hebrew that's used for a potter, shaping clay. He's forming. God puts his hands down into the dust, and he forms and he shapes Adam. So God gets, he gets personal when it comes to making you and me. And then, and then not only that, God stamps us in his own image. Like there's nothing else in all of creation that looks like God. Only you, only me, we wear, we carry the image of God himself. And then, if that's not enough, it says that God breathed his own breath into Adam and brought him to life. The breath you breathe is the breath of God. Nothing else in all of creation has that. Do you see how incredibly valuable you are. Let me just ask a couple of questions. Does every human being carry the image of God equally? Yes. These are some rhetorical questions for a second. So, so how about this? Does, does, uh, does a multi-billionaire, let's say a Jeff Bezos, does, does he have the image of God more than some drunk bum on the streets of New York City? No, he doesn't, does he? How about, how about, does someone who carries three PhDs have the image of God more than someone who has Down syndrome? No, does not. Does someone who is at the prime of life, let's say a 35-year-old studly dude who's got it all together, Right at the prime, man. I wish I was 35 again. That was a good year, right? 35. Somebody who's living life large at 35. Does that person carry the image of God more than someone who's in the womb, not even been birthed yet? 
No. Every human being wears the image of God. Every human being. And that's what gives every human being supreme value. If you notice that right now in the United States of America, that everything has rights, like, like there, there are certain shrubs that have rights. You know that? Like literally, you mow down the wrong shrub, you'll be fined. Do you know we got frogs that have rights? Yeah, you can laugh. It's silly when you stop and think about it. We got frogs that got rights. The only thing in our nation that has no right is an unwanted child. The only difference between a baby and a fetus is whether or not it's wanted. That's it. You lay the two side by side, they're identical. The only difference is whether or not it's wanted. Does that unwanted child carry the image of God any less than the wanted? Not at all. Why? Genesis chapter 1. We are all created in God's image. That gives us value. Genesis chapter 9, moving on up, Genesis 9. So we're not even out of Genesis yet, okay? Chapter 9, verse 5 and 6, God is speaking to Noah. You know Noah in the ark? Noah. And God says, and for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting for, from every animal. Look at that. And from each man, too. I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, see there, there you are, in the image of God has God made man. So because we are all made in the image of God, now murder is a capital offense. Even if an animal commits the murder. You notice that? Even if the animal causes the death of a human being, the animal needs to be put to death. Why? Because that blood and that person is made in the image of God. A murder is an attack against the image of God in another human being. That's what it is. It's, it's not just simply you know, ending a life. It's an actual attack against the image of God, and he takes it personally. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, says there are seven things that God hates. Okay, you think, does God hate? Yeah, he hates seven things. And Proverbs says that he calls these seven things an abomination. And one of the things on that list are, is this, hands that shed innocent blood. <clears throat> hands that shed innocent blood. You know, almost everybody agrees that murder is wrong. I would bet, you know, I don't think there's anybody that says, oh, it's fine to go ahead and murder. However, when it comes to an unborn child, we get squirrely, don't we? Senator Elizabeth Warren says that, not, that, that that child's not human until it draws its first breath. She actually says that. There's, there are people that are saying it's not a baby if it's not born. So they're not even defining it as a baby unless it's been born. But my question is, is this what the Bible says? See, because remember, you and I are held to Scripture. What's the Bible say? Genesis chapter 25. 
Again, we're not out of Genesis yet. Genesis 25, verses 22 through 26, is the story of Isaac and Rebekah. And Isaac and Rebekah had, she was pregnant with twin boys. The twin boys became Jacob and Esau, as we know them. But while they were in utero, they were fighting. And Rebekah sought God about what's going on inside her womb. And God told her this, two nations are in your womb and two people from within you will be separated. So check this out. Jacob and Esau are not even born yet, and already God calls them nations. You have two nations in you. These aren't just, these aren't just two fetuses. You've got two nations in your womb. It's remarkable. <clears throat> Moving on up in our Bibles, you come into the book of Exodus, chapter 21. Verses 22 through 25. Now, this is a part of ancient Israel's legal code. So lawyers love this kind of stuff because it's literally legal stuff. This was used in their courts of law, okay? If men who are fighting hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows but if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Now, what's remarkable about this is this is a primitive society. This is a Bronze Age people. Like, like these people in Exodus... These are the people you go to museums to look at. Like, you know, you walk to the museum, you see the wax figures, the guy with the really scraggly haircut and the rough-looking leather outfit, and his wife's got facial hair, and they're trying to start a fire with two rocks. Like, you know, you, in the museum, you see these people. That's these people. Okay, sometimes I think we read the Bible like they're modern people, but they were not. That's these people in Exodus 21. And yet here, this primitive people understood that there is something special going on in that woman's body, and it needs to be protected. They protected the unborn child. Isn't that remarkable? So much so that if she gave birth prematurely and everything was okay, the offender was still fined, wasn't he? And if she gave birth prematurely and if something was wrong, if the baby died or if some harm in some way, then it was life for life. It was a capital offense. Just makes me wonder, you know, if in all of our modern sophistication, have we become more foolish rather than wise? Because in this instance anyway, you have a primitive people who demonstrate a greater amount of wisdom, a, a greater acuity for human life than we do. Something to think about. In Judges chapter 13, Judges chapter 13, verse 2 to 5, you got the story of Samson, and we love the story of Samson because he's got the guy with the superhuman strength, and again, God is speaking to Samson's mom. This is before she becomes pregnant with Samson, okay? And God is telling her that she's going to give birth birth to this special child, and he would become Samson, of course. And this child was to be a Nazarite, he says, from birth. And a Nazarite was a special vow that they made in ancient Israel that basically it was somebody dedicating themselves to God in like a, just a fully 
like I'm devoted completely to God. And the way that they would demonstrate that devotion was they would not drink anything alcoholic and they would not cut their hair. So those were the two like symbols that someone had taken this Nazarite vow. And God is telling Samson's mom that Samson, her son, is going to be a Nazarite from the womb, it says. And therefore, as long as she's carrying him in the womb, she herself was not allowed to drink any fermented drink. So she kind of she had committed to the Nazarite vow while care, while pregnant with Samson. And so Judges 13, verse 5, it says, the boy is to be a Nazarite set apart to God from birth. Interesting, isn't it? That before he was even born, Samson had a call on his life. Prenatal. How about uh, we keep working through our Bibles? Job. We come up to Job chapter 31, verse 15. Now, Job, you know the story of Job. He's the guy that suffered. And he's lost everything in one day. And then Job's friends, they came to comfort him. And we have a name for them. We call them Job's comforters. And if anybody calls you one of Job's comforters, that's not a good thing. Because they were not very comforting at all to Job. Like, that's part of the story. And so they're, you know, they're, they, they actually argue with Job. Right? And they're saying that, the Job, the reason why you're suffering is because you've been bad, because you've sinned. You know? So that's their whole argument. And Job finds himself having to defend himself. And in one of these conversations he's having with them, he defends the way that he used to treat his servants because Job was a very wealthy man. And so he says of his former servants, because at this point he had lost everything, so now he says of them, he goes, did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form us within our mothers? Boy, that would have made Job a great man to work for, don't you think? Who actually saw that himself as the employer was equal to his employees? Like, because the same one that made me made you. And we're equal because we were both formed within our mothers. See, what's taking place inside that womb is a miracle. It's a work of God. This brings us to Psalms 139. And Psalms 139 is a well-known passage when you're talking about pro-life. And so I really didn't want to spend a ton of time in it, but I felt like it's such a big one that you, know, you, you can't not mention Psalms 139 when we're talking about the value of human life. But Psalms 139, starting with verse 13, it says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Isn't that amazing? I love this. God knit us together in our mother's womb. He knit have you ever tried knitting? Okay. The closest I ever came to knitting was I was 10 years old. My Aunt Nancy bought me a latch hook rug kit for Christmas. It was the Incredible Hulk. How's that for dating me, right? 1976, that's what it was. So an Incredible Hulk latch hook rug kit. And I, I had this thing. I put, I, so Christmas break, fine. I was cruising. 
You know, you, you got, it's one little thread and a whole thing, all these little squares. And it's supposed to be the Incredible Hulk when I'm done. And I made it through Christmas break, and I'm pretty sure I had it lost by the end of January. Like, knitting is tedious work. One stitch at a, I don't have, I don't have the patience for that. How about you? I don't know. And yet it says, God says, I knit you. I knit you together in your mother's womb. Stitch by stitch by stitch. There's not a detail in you that the God of the universe didn't oversee. Every part of you, down to the smallest part of your DNA, every part of you has the thumbprint of God on it. He stitched you. He knit you. It says, and then he says, all the days ordained for you were written in your book before one of them came to be. So God has written a book about you? Yes. You've got a book. He's telling a story with your life. Your life matters because the God of the universe is communicating something with your life, you see. And, and that starts in the womb. All the days, boy, it makes you think, with, with, with nearly 80 million, what is it, abortions to date, how many stories never made it past the first page? And isn't that what makes murder so audacious, right? It's, it's yes, there's the killing of a human life. Yes, there's the attack on the image of God. But, but also, it's the, I'm cutting your story short. I wonder how many stories got cut short that God is, you know, boy, we're all in process, aren't we? We're all, boy, I'm glad I'm, I'm not done yet. The Lord's still working something with my life, and he's working that with your life too, isn't he? And that's encouraging, because right now, if you're in a really bad spot, let me tell you, don't, this spot doesn't define who you are. Okay, you're just in this spot, that's all, this spot. But God's writing a story, friend. You get that? And let me tell you, there are, your best days are ahead of you. Your best days. <clears throat> anyway, that wasn't the notes. But that's, boy, that, that's, such a good, that's such good news. And all of that begins where? In the womb. I'm pointing like I have one. I don't. So, yeah, it all begins in the womb, right? Isaiah 49, verse 1 says, Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he's made mention of my name. When did the call of God begin? Before I was born. Okay, what's even more stunning? Let's go to Jeremiah 1, verse 5. This is stunning to me. Jeremiah 1. This is the call of Jeremiah, the prophet, the great prophet. And God says to him, just listen to these words. These words are stunning, Okay. Before I formed you in the womb, right? So who, did, who makes us in the womb? God does. And before I did that, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. That is breathtaking. That before Jeremiah was even conceived, God knew him. 
And before he was born, God said, I have set you apart. I've called you as a prophet to the nations. So his calling began. It's amazing. I mean, just try to wrap your mind around that. It's hard, isn't it? Something we need to understand quickly that God is eternal and you and I are not. You and I are everlasting. We need to know the difference between eternal and everlasting. So God is eternal. That means he has no beginning and he has no end. He always was and he always will be. He's eternal. You and I are not eternal. You and I are everlasting, which means we have a beginning, but we have no end. Follow? So you and I did not pre-exist. You and I have not always been. I did not get started until the sperm and the egg met one another, and that's when Doug Rouse began. Prior to that, I did not exist, okay? But God is eternal, so he is outside of time. And so that doesn't mean that God couldn't know me before I was a me. <laughs> and, and I've loved this. I've said this before when we've talked about predestination. God loved you before there was a you to love. And God looked at Jeremiah's life. He knew Jeremiah before there was a Jeremiah. And he said, before you were Jeremiah, I, before I formed you, I knew you back then. And back then, Jeremiah, I called you as a prophet. All this to say, my friends, man, amazing. This is breathtaking. So does this mean that before you were conceived, God called you as an engineer? think so. Could, could this mean that before you were conceived that God knew you would be creative and you would just have this love for music or this love for art? Like, yes. Like, does this mean like before you were even conceived, right? The, the, long before your parents got you, even got together, like God saw you and he said, she's going to be some kind of special. Man, I can't wait for him to show up. Whew. I think so. See, listen, your life began at conception, but your life was priceless before you were conceived. You've been priceless since eternity because God knew you, but your life began when you were conceived. Do you see why it's so wrong to cut short a human life simply because parents weren't expecting it to happen? You see why it's wrong for us to qualify human life and say that a Down syndrome child should not be allowed to born, be born, but a, 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 quote, normal child has the right to be born. Like, do you see why that's audacious for us to do that? What right do I have to think that someone in a wheelchair is less valuable than someone else? This is not break your heart. Or that someone with a lower IQ is somehow less important and doesn't deserve to live more than somebody who has a, is a genius IQ. Like, what does it matter? Both, both display the image and the glory of God. And both are beautiful in their own right. See, who do we think we are to, to define what a, quote, quality of life looks like? See, Hufa, the person in that wheelchair, can bring glory to the God who made him or her as much as an Olympic athlete can. 
God says, before I formed you, I knew you. That's stunning. Now, this is where some people like to give an exception. This is where we feel the pain, you see, of how someone, of how a woman might become pregnant. And out of our emotions, we make exceptions. We say, like, you know, in the exception of rape or incest, well, then, you know, then it's okay. And can we just all agree that that's tragic? Like, that rape and incest, if, if a woman is raped or if there's incest, like, that's, that's tragic. That's horrible. That's, that's abominable. That shouldn't happen. We can agree with that, right? That is absolutely wrong on every level, right? Except that the, the events that lead to the conception of a child, they might have been horrible. But does that minimize the value of that child? It doesn't, does it? That unborn child is still a human being, regardless of the events that led to the conception of that child. And God is knitting that human being together in his or hers mother in the womb, knitting that child. And he has a plan for that child. And he's got a calling on that child's life. And killing that child doesn't solve, hear it, killing that child doesn't solve the pain of the rape or the incest. It doesn't. So so we have to come up with another way, don't we? Of, of, of walking alongside of victims of rape and incest? Shouldn't there be another way of doing that? Do you, is the only way killing the baby? Surely there has to be another way. Surely there has to be more that we can do together to walk with a woman through a horrible event like that than simply saying, let's kill the baby. Okay. So two more scriptures. And then, we're, and then we're almost done. Okay. Uh, Luke chapter 1. Then we're going to end with a story. Luke chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. It's part of the Christmas story. We all love the Christmas story. The angel appears to Zechariah and, uh, and his, tells him that he and his wife Elizabeth are going to have a baby. And the baby is, what do you know, it's going to become John the Baptist someday. And so here he's, the angel is announcing this to Zechariah. And God tells him that the baby his wife is going to carry in her womb is this. He said, will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or any other fermented drink. So he was like Samson. He was a Nazarite. Uh, Never to take wine or any other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. So when did John the Baptist become John the Baptist? At birth. Wow. In fact, later on in the Christmas story, Mary goes on, you know, Mary, she finds out that she's going to carry the Messiah. She goes and visits her cousin Elizabeth, and you probably know the story. What happens when Mary walks in to see Elizabeth? John leaps inside of Elizabeth's belly. So here's John in utero, able to acknowledge the presence of Christ as he walked into the room. Stunning. How... How an in utero, I I didn't think he was alive yet. Oh, apparently he was very much alive, right? Able to determine this is the Messiah, and he leaps in praise. He's aware of his surroundings. One more verse, Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. This is the Apostle Paul. 
when did Paul's call to ministry begin? You know, we often think, oh, when God knocked him off the horse on his road to Damascus, but that's actually not true. Paul says in Galatians 1, verse 15, he says, but when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, chose to reveal, goes on to say, chose to reveal Jesus to me in time. So in other words, God had a call on his life what he was in before he was born. Now, between that and the time that he gets knocked off the horse and becomes the person that we know as the Apostle Paul, you and I know there was a rough road between there, wasn't that? He was a murderer. I mean, he, he was a bad dude between there and there. Again, proving the point that why would you ever define somebody by the spot they're in right now? Do you follow this? God called Paul as an apostle at birth. Paul has this really rough road. And then he encounters Jesus Christ. And this is when he begins to walk in his calling. But prior to that, he was called already. So you might not be yet even walking in the calling that God has on your life. But God's got his eye on you. He knows what he's doing in your life. He does. See, we can be encouraged by that. In other words, friends, the biblical record is crystal clear. God knits and forms each human being in our mother's womb. Every human being is created in the image of God, and he's intimately involved in what happens with each of our lives because even before we existed, God saw us and he had a plan for us. And this makes every single human being, unborn or born, a priceless treasure from God. And to snuff out that life is murder, and God takes it very seriously. Please let me just take a moment here in closing, okay? And I want to address uh, some of us. Maybe there are some of us here that maybe you have been directly affected by abortion. Maybe, ladies, you've had one. Or maybe you were a, you know, your boyfriend and your girlfriend had one. Or, and so whether you're a man or a woman, you've been affected by this, you know, maybe in a different way for sure between a man and a woman, will handle it differently, but affected by it. Can I just take a second and give you some freedom? So we have a great story, a great example in the Bible of a couple who experienced an unplanned pregnancy and what happened and what they did with it. In the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 11 and 12, we read the story of David and Bathsheba. David, you know, he's the king of Israel. David was the shepherd boy who became the king. David stayed back home. His army goes off to war. And while David is home, he has an affair, extramarital affair, with a woman named Bathsheba. Now, Bathsheba's husband is a man named Uriah. Uriah is a noble man. And you read the story, and I'm telling you, you respect the heck out of Uriah. Uriah is the kind of man that any one of us would want in our lives. Like literally, he is portrayed in just the most noble of ways, okay? So Uriah is just cream of the crop. He had nothing to do with this. 
Uriah is off fighting the battle with the army. He's off fighting David's battle. And David's back home committing adultery with his wife. So they, have a, they get pregnant. And the Bible begins to show us what all happened and the, the, the turmoil and the fear and the worry and the angst that happens when you have an unplanned pregnancy. The, the fear, what are people going to think? What are people going to say? What's this going to look like? I'm not prepared. This is going to ruin my life. Like all of those emotions that go in with an unplanned pregnancy, David experienced those. And he tried his best to cover it up. And no matter what he tried, it wouldn't work. And he got more and more desperate to mitigate this problem in his life. And so what does he do? He actually orders the death, in a sense, of Uriah. But not just Uriah, other men died along with Uriah. You read the Bible text, David ordered Joab, the general, to put Uriah up on the front lines and to push forward in the battle, which means that Uriah didn't go by himself. He went with a platoon. I mean, there were other people that died that day along with Uriah in order to cover David's sin. This is how David tried to solve his problem of this unwanted pregnancy. You say, boy, that is a dark day for David, isn't it? And if you have ever experienced it, you understand it more than I do. You know, I, I, I have to admit, I've never walked in those shoes, but I, I've talked with people who have, I've walked with people who have, and I've seen it from a front row seat, the fear and the shame and the heartache and the brokenness and the worry and all of that that goes along with an unplanned pregnancy and the need to try to cover it up and do something and fix this problem and all of that. And that was David. And he fixed it the way that he thought was best, right? Only we all know that that was not God's plan. David sinned and his life became a wreck as a result. And then God in his grace prompted the prophet Nathan to come and confront David about his sin. And when he did, to David's credit, you know what he did? He melted in a pool of repentance. David dropped to his knees. He knew that he had sinned. He knew that he had done wrong. He knew. And David penned some of the most beautiful words in all of the Bible. They're called Psalms 51. And I, I wanted to read it for us in closing, just the whole thing, because I, I want you to see how David processed this sin, okay? Like, literally, he wrote Psalms 51, literally. If your Bible tells you when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, like, says it in the subtext, right? So here's David. He writes this psalm after he's been confronted, after all of this has happened. And, and I think it's important for us to read it, the whole thing, because we'll be able to 
see how you process sin. And let's face it, I haven't had an abortion, you know, but I have sinned. Let's be honest. We are all sinners in this room, every one of us. So, so we can all learn from David's example in Psalm 51 how I process sin when I commit it, okay? So here's what he says. Oh, man. <clears throat> he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. I, I know. <laughs> right? He's not hiding, is he? Yeah, against you, you only have I sinned and, and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and you are justified when you judge. Isn't that something, David? Say, God, you're right if you judged me. You're right. You have every right to send me straight to hell. In essence, that's what he's saying. You have a right to judge me, God, because I have sinned. Right? He says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb it kind of fits with today, doesn't it? You desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. No, my sacrifice, God, is a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart you, God, will not despise. And then you see the king come out in verse 18. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. You know, David, you see what he does? He acknowledges that it's a sin. That's important. Let's not candy coat it or water it down or pretend that it wasn't that bad. A sin is a sin is a sin. And it makes me worthy of judgment. And David acknowledged that. 
If you judge me, you'd be right, God. That's what I deserve. But you see, he throws himself on the mercy of God. And he finds the mercy of God because that's God's heart. <laughs> Aren't you glad? And David says, I would bring you a sacrifice if I could. I mean, if that's, if that's what you required, Lord, sure, I'll, I'll do that. But that's not. All I have to offer you, Lord, is a broken heart and a contrite heart. Here it is. And David gives his broken heart to God. And he finds healing, forgiveness, freedom, restoration. And the same is true for you and me. Whether it's the sin of an abortion or it's the, any other sin, we come before God, we say, here's my broken heart. Here's the mess that I made, Lord. I have sinned. I don't candy coat it. I don't pretend like it's not that bad. I don't water it down. I acknowledge the fact that it is every bit as evil as you say it is, God. You are right in your judgment. But Lord, I call on your mercy today. I need you. Would you forgive me? And God washes it clean. That's the God we worship and serve. Isn't he wonderful? He's wonderful. So the first step to healing is to reveal, acknowledge the sin. I have to reveal it in order to have it be healed. But healing is available to all of us. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.